0: Good evening, and welcome to another Tuesday evening episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens, and as usual, Pastor Murphy is on the program with us. Rather than being in the studio, he is
1: on the phone tonight.
0: Good evening, Pastor.
1: Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who might be listening to the program. Thank you so much for allowing us to come into your home.
0: Yes, and this is not only just a teaching program, this is a live interactive program, and let me share the contact information, how you can communicate with us on the program tonight. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454, 268-782-1454. 782-1454 782 for WhatsApp or text messaging your question. You cannot call tonight uh, since Pastor is on the phone. But we look forward to you sending your question in via WhatsApp or text. Or you can join us on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed. And then right there on your device while you listen to the program, you can comment in the comment section. And those comments are being monitored and we will get asked to Pastor Murphy live on the air in a timely manner. Pastor, it's good to have you back on the program after being away for a week, and we are going to pick up our topic of the Holy Spirit. And for those who may just be joining us on this particular episode and didn't hear the material you shared in previous episodes on the Holy Spirit, can you give us kind of an overview of why we're doing this topic and what material you have covered?
1: The main reason I suggested that we should do this subject uh, was a follow through from our previous topic, dealing with prayer, and the biblical emphasis on the Holy Spirit in respect. I just thought it was a natural sequence, uh, sequel that should lead to deal with this topic. The other factor is I mentioned that the Holy Spirit is the chief executive in this current dispensation. Uh, Under the New Testament economy, the predominant person who uh, we're familiar with is the Father. Within the New Testament dispensation of salvation, you have the Son who performs the work of redemption. And now in this current dispensation, the Church Age of Grace, we have the the prominence of the Holy Spirit. And He directs all attention to Christ. But he is a central figure and a central agent that God uses in this dispensation. Uh, And and we talked about the matter of, um, in a very real sense, the Holy Spirit personalizes Christianity. Uh, We always perceive that the Father sits on the throne, his son sits at his right hand hand then we told that the Holy Spirit will come, he will live within you, he will abide with you, he will comfort you, he will be the paraclete, the one that comes alongside to aid you and assist you and to help you. So to have what we might call existential Christianity, Christianity the moment of the time, uh, we thought it was important for us to deal with the whole matter of the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then the other thing that we, we we try to make some clarity about is the old archaic terms that they use that might uh, create in people's mind a distortion of the a personality of the Holy Spirit and that's the fact that he's called the Holy Ghost and we want to make some clarifications to why that term is used especially if you're using a, the King James Version as opposed to a modern version uh, we kind of made that very clear why that is the case and then we, we move into the uh, the whole matter of why the church over a period of history has not given as much attention to the Holy Spirit as it should and, and it seemed to be only in the last few centuries that the church zeroed in on this subject. and we pointed out that uh, the main reason for this uh, had to do with the fact that the church was always defending or contending for the doctrine of Christ, especially in relation to his personality, uh, his identity, his deity and his humanity. And they've always been issues that caused the church to concentrate on trying to get some clarity. And what this real doctrine of christ was all about uh, so the church in its absorption with, with dealing with that particular subject um, um, did not have time to really focus so much on the holy spirit and it's only as doctrinal issues became uh, a matter of contention that the switch was made to start to deal with the holy spirit uh, so we, we talked about the monarchian heresy, we talked about the Abionites, we talked about the Gnostic uh, philosophy that entered the church, and of course, we talked about the monarchian um, heresy as well that had to do with what's called modalism. so we dealt with, with those types of matters. The other thing we drew attention to, Nathan, is that um, a lot of emphasis was placed by the church in the Dark Ages, not so much on the power of the Holy Spirit, but the... Hello?
0: Yeah, you're on. Continue.
1: Okay, sorry. A lot of emphasis was not placed so much on the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, emphasis was placed on the church as a means of grace. And so the tr- priest had tremendous power to forgive sin and not forgive sin. Uh, he had the power to uh, speak Latin and somehow miraculous transformed the wafer and the wine into the blood and uh, and uh, body of Christ and the church was perceived as the chief channel of grace Uh, of course Mary became the center of a lot of worship And if you needed help, you turned to her for help, who would turn to Jesus, who would go to the Father. In addition to that, you had this great repository of grace that the saints were supposed to have had. They had more grace than they needed. So there's a bank of grace in heaven that you could tap into, and of course you've got the seven sacraments, which are also means of grace. So really you can understand why there was not so much emphasis on the Holy Spirit, because these were uh, means of getting the help and the power that you need uh, in your daily life. Uh, That helps to explain in some measure why uh, there was not so much emphasis on this subject and not with. Um, And then uh, we, we talked about the fact that Um, there's been some confusion as to what is the Holy Spirit? Who is he? Is he a it or is he a a person? And we explain that a lot of these issues stem from um, grammar. It stands from um, words that were used and sometimes mistranslation. The word spirit in itself, we pointed out, is a word that can either mean wind or breath or spirit. Uh, Sometimes it even means power. So because it's also in the neuter gender, there was some misunderstanding in regard regard to this matter. But again, those who are familiar with languages would know that there's something called a grammatical gender. And uh, there are things that are masculine or feminine in different languages that are given a neuter gender, because it's a it's a grammatical gender. You find that also in French, you find that in German. And then the symbols that are often used in the scripture, we talked about the dove, the oil, the water, the fire, uh, would have led people to, to think in this direction. But above all, I think it's the blunders of translations, uh, where the spirit is called itself, uh, in Romans 8.16 and Romans 8.26, when in truth and fact it should be himself, uh, uh, and that has led, I believe, to some misunderstanding in connection uh, with this matter. Uh, and then we, we talked about the matter that because of these uncertainties and these uh, issues, uh, certain groups within the church, like the Socinians, uh, who uh, talked about the Holy Spirit being the virtue or the energy that flows from God. And, and then uh, we also talked about the Uh, who saw the Holy Spirit as uh, a means of uh, expression, as one of the modes um, of God manifesting himself. So he's not separate from the Father, he's just a manifestation of the Father. And of course the liberal theologians in the 19th and 20th century, most of them, uh, discount the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person. And, of course, these are the ones that taught in the theological seminaries and of the current generation of many of the pastors who are in churches that are non-Baptistic and non-evangelical uh, came out of that that group who were taught uh, in those seminaries the era that the Holy Spirit was not a person. Uh, so that, that helps explain... Uh, why there has been this confusion concerning exactly who the Holy Spirit is. Uh, And then what we did after that, Nathan, uh, finally in our discussion of the Holy Spirit, is that we turned to the Scriptures to get a definitive answer in respect to who exactly is the Holy Spirit. And the first thing that we looked at uh, quite clearly is to see whether or not he is a person, uh, it, as the scripture indicate that he is a person. And when we did that, uh, we saw that the forensic evidence is overwhelming, totally conclusive, and any other suggestion otherwise is both irrational and unbiblical. Um, the Bible tells us that he possesses the three fundamental attributes or qualities of quality, personality. He has emotions, he has intellect, he has volition. That makes him a person and not an it not a force, not just an influence. Uh, the Bible also uh, teaches us that he does things that only a person can do. The Bible said he teaches, he guides, he testifies, he speaks, he enlightens, he strives, he intercedes, he commissions workers, he comforts, uh, he works himself, he commands, he calls. These are nine, 12 different things that the Holy Spirit does that a person can do. And then the argument was that the masculine uh, pronoun he is given to the Holy Spirit several times in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16 when the Lord was teaching that the Comforter would come. And then again in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 14, uh, you again got the masculine personal pronoun applied to the Holy Spirit. So instead of, um, as it was read in the King James, which, it should be who. And then um, we also pointed out That he's associated with other persons uh, as individuals. He's a member of the Trinity in both in baptismal formula and the benediction that Paul gives in his epistles. He's associated with the Father, the Son, and also we find that in Acts. In chapter 15, he associated with other persons, he associated with the apostles and the elders. And uh, it is said that uh, the apostles and the elders and the Holy Spirit uh, came to the same conclusion in respect to the whole matter of a letter being sent to the Gentiles in respect to whether or not they were under the economy of law. And then we looked at the fact that he is susceptible to personal mistreatment. He can be lied to, he can be insulted, he can be grieved, he can be blasphemed. Uh, these are only things that people you can do to a person. Uh, you don't do these things to uh, force or power. Uh, so that is substantially, those are substantially the the uh, arguments that you find in Scripture that would indicate clearly that he is a person. And that's where we, we concluded and we wanted to get into the whole fact that besides the fact that his personhood is established in Scripture, we also wanted to um, uh, look in the scripture to see that he is more than just a person. He is not a created being. He's an eternal being. And the fact is that he is full deity as Christ is fully deity. So he's the third person within the Godhead. And I think that's exactly where we, we finished uh, in our last discussion.
0: Thank you for that uh, review, Pastor. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to That's Truth, a, a live interactive program here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Pastor Murphy is joining us by phone tonight, so you can't call in and be put live on the air, but you can call the studio and speak with our call screener, and she will write down your question, and then we will ask Pastor Murphy live on the air your question. And that phone number to call is 462-1454. Again, you can call 462-1454, or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. WhatsApp or text 268 782 one four five four or you can join us on facebook live go to the caribbean radio lighthouse facebook page click on the facebook live video feed and you can comment your question in the comment section on your device pastor is it possible to put too much emphasis on the holy spirit are there religious groups that have done that
1: I think what has happened to a lot of conservatives and some evangelicals, especially Baptists, I think a lot of crazy stuff has been done and said and taught and uh, demonstrated uh, both on television and um, other forms of observation. Uh, For example, you had the, the Holy Laughter Movement. Uh, where you have uh, the pastor beginning to laugh, and then the, the deacons begin to laugh, and then the congregation begin to laugh, and the whole church begins to laugh, and pandemonium is in the church, and everybody says that there's some function there's something very special. But when you see that kind of ridiculous behavior, uh, you wonder, um, you know, the tendency is that we don't want to be considered to be fanatics, and therefore, we have a pushback on that, and we tend to go to the other end of the spectrum. Besides that, Nathan, you've got illustration on television. You seen that with people have a leak over a person, and he's barking like a dog or howling like a, a wolf. And uh, and all of this is said to be the demonstration that the Holy Spirit uh, is in the presence. And, and, of course, a few years ago, it, it was not just that. It was the whole matter that uh, unless you spoke in tongues, it was the proof that you were baptized with the Holy Spirit before you spoke in tongues. But then a lot of the tongues that you have is gibberish. It's not a human language that even those people who study linguistics who have uh, sat in to, uh, some of these meetings and to these people have come to the conclusion that this is not a human language, this is something other that nobody knows about. But yet, the word glossolia that is used in the book of Acts and also in the book of Corinthians, it always refers to some dialect or some human language. And the, you know, it has, and then the other factor is so that to insist that every person uh, must speak with tongues to indicate that he is baptized in the Holy Spirit is an error. Because in Corinthians, Paul said that we're all baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. But then in the same chapter, Paul said, all do not speak in tongues. So they to equate uh, the Holy Spirit's baptism with speaking in tongues was a major error. Uh, and uh, I think people saw that and saw the results that it was creating. I remember the charismatic movement is what brought uh, broke down a lot of the barriers between churches in relation to doctrine. What became central to uh, this common um, association, it was the experience. It was not about truth or the doctrine of the Bible. So you began to find that um, uh, Baptists began to speak in tongues, Evangelicals began to speak in tongues, Catholics began to speak everybody was speaking in tongues, Mormons speak in tongues. And that created uh, a, a, a breakdown of the doctrinal distinctions between these different groups. And that was creating what is called the ecumenical fellowship. And uh, so that, because this has happened, uh, it has actually created, uh, pushed conservative believers and fundamentalists, uh, as far as Christianity is concerned, uh, to really not pay too much attention uh, to the Holy Spirit. And so not much was said or done uh, on this matter. Uh, It's like, you know, you're trying to avoid an extreme position, but in the long term, uh, you do damage to your own uh, movement or your own group because you have demoted or not paid attention to the Holy Spirit as you should. I think that has happened. Uh, So there is a danger of both overemphasizing uh, the Holy Spirit and also a danger of neglecting the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Both of them are extreme positions. And uh, we have to be careful that we don't, uh, in an attempt to not to be lumped together with groups that um, are doing things that are sensational and outlandish, that we ourselves do not neglect this ministry of the Holy Spirit.
0: Any words of advice as to how to strike that balance?
1: Well, I think the best way to do that is to go to the Scriptures. uh, Study for yourself what the Bible teaches on these matters, uh, where there are controversial issues, where there seem to be a disparity of opinions. What you do basically is let the Bible be the final authority, the standard, the canon, by which you decide whether this controversial issue, uh, who is right about this whole matter. But the, the only best way to deal with that is you yourself as an individual getting into the Scriptures, searching out what the Bible teaches on these matters and getting clarity on these matters and of course the holy spirit is the one to guide you into all truth so you search the scriptures you seek his help that he would guide you into the truth about himself and about his ministry um, in, in, in terms of what is his function here on planet earth during this dispensation one other thing I like to say quickly Nathan the holy spirit never elevates himself Uh, uh, he will guide you into all truth and Jesus said he will speak of me he will glorify me so he he, he hides in the shadows as it were and points towards Christ and tries to exalt Christ and glorify Christ so when you find a group that is um, um, overly absorbed with the the manifestation of the spirit, and it has nothing to do with the testimony to Christ and His work on the cross and His redemptive work today. You know that that group has uh, gone off on a tangent and have forgotten specifically what the Lord said that when He comes, He will speak of me, He will present the things concerning myself, and He will glorify me. And to glorify Christ, of course, is to put Him on display, uh, to manifest uh, His character and manifest who He is, and draw attention to him him as opposed to himself
0: you're listening to the that's truth on the Caribbean radio lighthouse if you have a question you can whatsapp or text it to one two six eight seven eight two one four five four two six eight seven eight two one four five four will be your whatsapp or text number. Again, we are talking about the Holy Spirit, but if you have a question on another topic, feel free to send in your question. You can't call and be put live on the air tonight uh, because the phone line is being used for Pastor to join us, but you can call the studio, and our call screener will gladly talk to you and then type out your question, and I will ask Pastor Murphy live on the air. So if you would like to call, you can call 268 462 five four. Call two six eight four six two one four five four. As Pastor, as we're talking about the Holy Spirit, you've established that he's a person and not merely an influencer or a force, or I think you even use the word power. But what type of person would you say that he is?
1: Again, the church was really forced to deal with this matter because there were certain groups within the, the church in the third and fourth century that began to uh, teach um, heretical doctrines in respect to the Holy Spirit. And again, just like in the case of the uh, person of Christ and deity of Christ when issues first surfaced, the church was forced now to uh, do a serious study on, on this matter, looking at the scriptures and coming to the conclusion. For example, you had the Arius, uh, uh, with, what you call Arianism. Uh, he claimed that, of course, Christ was the first creature of God, but he was also teaching that the Holy Spirit was the first creature of the Son. So just like the Father created the Son, the Son now creates the Holy Spirit. That forced the Church to re-examine uh, what of this teaching was heretical. And then there were some disciples of um, uh, Macedonius, uh, the Bishop of Constantinople, and uh, 341 to 360. They also held that the Holy Spirit was not God, and uh, the, the the again uh, the Church was forced to the scriptures, search the scriptures. Is he deity or is he not? Is he a demi-god? Is he a created being? Is he the eternal being? Who exactly is the Holy Spirit? Uh, of course, today, these heretical teachings uh, that the Holy Spirit uh, is a force or power and influence and uh, not a person and also not deity. And this has now been carried on in the Jehovah's Witness heresy. the watch our society. They, too, uh, claim that the Holy Spirit is not a person, that he is just an or of power. But they do not recognize either his personality or his deity. So the heresies of the 3rd uh, the and 4th century has now been handed off. The baton of that heretical teaching was now being taken up by the Jehovah's Witness. And it's being taught today as though it's something new. Uh, and just like they teach that Christ is the first creature of God and not deity, they also teach that the Holy Spirit is not a person. So uh, that is what these kind of teachings are what forced the church to um, to examine uh, the uh, who exactly what does the Bible teach on this matter. So he's and
0: he's an eternal he's an eternal being. He re- wasn't created. But what arguments from Scripture are there for his deity?
1: Well, the church came up when it uh, with seven arguments that would support and vindicate the deity of christ Uh, first of all they recognize that in scripture the holy spirit himself is called god and the names that apply to god is applied also to the holy spirit and they also find that the attributes of god that only belong to deity are also ascribed to the holy spirit and the kind of works that he does uh, only the kind of work that God can do. Uh, he also received the same honor that's due only to God. Uh, they also found that he's associated with the other members of the Trinity uh, uh, at a level of equality. And then uh, his words uh, are said to be the very words that God speaks. And of course, the names applied uh, to him uh, imply uh, his deity as well. So there are seven basic arguments that the church has um, discovered in the study of scriptures that would vindicate and uh, prove conclusively that we're not dealing here with a, a, a created being we're here dealing with a third person of the trinity that belongs with the godhead equal with the, Father, and equal with the son those are the those are the things that uh, the church had discovered uh if you want us to want me to elaborate on these things yes. and uh very friday evidence uh, I hope you are able to yourself check these scriptures for me. Yes, I can. Right. Uh, the first one is that uh, the Holy Spirit himself is called God. Uh, if you look at Acts chapter 5 and verse 3, verse 4, and verse 9, Acts chapter 5, uh, you have the incident of Nassim Sapphira uh, who mislead the disciples by uh, really... Uh, prevaricating and creating, uh, speaking a lie in respect to some property that they sold because they wanted to be considered to be generous and to be people who are um, humanitarian and, and just wanted to get the applause of the other members. And it's interesting what Peter said in those passages. So if you read uh, Acts 5 3, Acts 5 4, and Acts 5 9, uh, you will see the connection there, the fact that the Holy Spirit is in fact.
0: All right, those verses say, but Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost, and to keep back part of the price of the land? Verse 4, whiles it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not thine own power? In thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. and skipping down to verse number nine, then Peter said unto her, "How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out.
1: yeah, you you notice in the first case uh, it said, uh, you know you, you've lied." Um, in in verse number three. And then he said that you've lied not to men, but you've lied uh, to God. Uh, So he said you've lied to the Holy Spirit in verse three. And then in verse four, he said you've not lied uh, to man, you've lied to God. And then uh, in verse number nine, he said you've lied to the Spirit of God. So clearly, uh, lying to the Holy Spirit is said to be lying to God. So he's equated, and the, the, the antecedent is clearly the Holy Spirit in, in In verse number four, and then has to be the Holy Spirit in verse number three. So when you look at scripture, uh, that passage is very, very clear that the Holy Spirit himself is described as God, lying to him is lying to God. Uh, in, 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 in Corinthians seventeen, if you just
0: look at that, second Corinthians chapter three, verse seventeen. Second Corinthians three: seventeen mm-hmm. says, "Now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom.
1: Yeah. yeah. Again, the Lord is the spirit. So he's equating the of God uh, to the Holy Spirit, and indicating that uh, when you speak of the Holy Spirit, you're speaking of the Lord. That's what he's called the Spirit of God in Acts chapter five and verse number nine. It's so another interesting passage in in Job chapter thirty-three, verse four. Uh, if you would like to read that, please. Job
0: thirty-three and verse four. Reads as follows, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life.
1: You see, there's a parallelism. The Spirit of God is the same thing as the breath of God, say the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Almighty. Uh, in the, in the uh, Hebrew way of writing, uh, there's what you call parallelism. So he's equating these. And, and the, If you read the, uh, the King James, it's, it's called these, the, the Spirit of the Almighty. The word is El Shaddai the Almighty. Uh, so the, the the Spirit of the Almighty is the same thing as the breath of God, Spirit of God. Uh, and He said, He has made me. Uh, so that's an indication there in the Old Testament that the, the Spirit of God is mentioned in the Old Testament and that He's part of the whole matter of creation. As a matter of fact, when you're going to the Scripture, you search the Scriptures, you'll find that both the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all part of the engaged the, the the act of creation because it's the part of the godhead. Um, so there you have it. He's called God in the Book of Acts. He's given the name, saying the name God in the Book of Corinthians, chapter three, the, the the divine name, Lord. And in the Book of Job, uh, he's called the Spirit of God as the one that has, has made him. The Pastor, other thing is, that,
0: we have a question that has come in. Sure. Uh, it says good night. I have a question. Can the spirit of deceased of the deceased visit their loved ones?
1: There's no indication in the Scriptures that, that. well, I shouldn't say there's no indication. Uh, you do have what is called necromancy mentioned in the Scriptures, where people are trying to get in contact with the dead spirits of the ancestors. Everywhere in the Bible, that is considered to be an abomination. God repudiates that, and God warns that those who uh, delve into it, Uh, with the occult practice of trying to get in contact with the dead necromancy. God abominates that and and promises severe judgment on those people that engage in such activity. What I believe that happens in a case like that is that you have demonic spirits that impersonate people who are dead. Uh, I think that's exactly what happens with people in contact with people who have died. Uh, there's only one passage in the Bible uh, in the book of uh, it's either I think it's second Samuel where King Saul because of his repeated life of disobedience, uh, God had withdrawn in spirit from King Saul and uh, there was no prophet, there was no prayer, there was no priest, there was no seer. the Bible says the head was like brass to this man because of his repeated acts of disobedience and in his attempt, to find out uh, what his destiny and what would happen in case of a a battle he was going to, he went to the witch of Endor and tried to call up Samuel. And it is very, very clear in that passage, in my mind, that God miraculously allowed Samuel to come up and give him a prophetic word in terms of his doom and his judgment that he would die, so much so that when Samuel actually appeared, the uh, the witch was so uh, shocked that uh, Samuel had actually appeared, that it seems very clear that this was not something that he was accustomed to. This is something that happened miraculously, but God didn't intervene in that case. But that's not a basis for people engaging in in necromancy and getting involved in in dealing with spiritism and calling out the dead. Uh, This is something God warns against, and uh, pagans have always uh, practiced this kind of of behavior, and also the neo era in which we're living, there are many people who are very learned, very sophisticated, very educated, and sometimes very scientific that have completely ignored our warning and uh, 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 practice spiritism and try to get in contact with people uh, who have died. but. Uh, there's no indication in Scripture that the the being or the entity that these people get in contact with are actually the spirit of the people that are dead, because the Bible says the point of the man wants to die, but after this, the judgment. So there's no indication that the living and the dead can be in contact. But certainly, if you or I were uh, the eternal enemy of God and I did to deceive humankind, uh, there's no question about it. I would use my demonic power powers and my demonic beings, uh, to impersonate those persons. Remember that. Satan's been on planet Earth for over 6,000 years, if you take the typical um, um, period of time. And these these evil spirits also have been observing humankind for so long. So they clearly, within your lifetime or my lifetime, would know my character, my characteristics, my behavior, my acts, whatever is involved, my thinking. And uh, it would not be beyond them. Because we're dealing with beings that are far more intelligent than man, far smarter and more subtle than man is, so it's not uh, outlandish uh, to consider that it's possible for these these fallen angelic beings who are no demonic powers to imitate people and to deceive them into thinking that they actually in contact with those people that uh, people want to meet, like their moms, and dad, brothers, and sisters, or some person who's died.
0: Thank you to the individual who sent in that question. And if you have a question that you would like, Pastor, to answer from a biblical worldview and using scripture, please, you can send it in via WhatsApp or text message to one two six eight seven eight two one four five four. 782 1454 Again, WhatsApp or text 268 268- Seven eight two one four five four. 1454 If you would like to call, you can call and speak to our call screener and then she will type out your question and I will ask Pastor Murphy live on the air. The phone number to call for tonight's episode is 462 Again, 268-462-1454 is the phone number to call for tonight's episode. If you would like to join us on Facebook Live, go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video link, and you can comment right there on your device, and I will pass along those comments or those questions to Pastor Murphy in a timely manner. Pastor, a uh, follow-up question from, or a follow-up comment in relation to the question that was just asked. Uh, the reason for my question, two nights ago, my mom said around one thirty a.m., she distinctively heard someone walk through the hallway and pulled the curtain in her door of her bedroom.
1: But that is possible, you know. I, I, I've had some weird experiences myself. Uh, <laughs> I, my, I don't want to sound bizarre, but I've been sleeping in my mom's home when i uh, after she died and i wouldn't kid you um, there was a rush of noise and wind uh, in the ceiling it could not have been a rat i don't know what it was but i was terrified and there's no question that there are evil powers and evil forces that can do these kind of things uh what we got to be careful is that we don't become enamored uh with this kind of traffic in this kind of activity, but there's certainly uh, mysterious, uh, invisible activity that goes on. Uh, I've had friends who have told me that they've been, and I have no doubt to believe that the people who are sincere, I've had pe- believers who have told me this, uh, that they've been uh, walking to a dark area, then they've, they've seen a cat, and then suddenly it just disappears. Uh, I don't doubt that these things really happen because we're living in a world of not flesh and blood only. And that's the thing we have forgotten. We are living in a world of invisible evil powers that are working against human interests. Our problem is that, sorry. No, go ahead. I'm saying the problem is that Uh, We think it's a flesh and and blood battle, uh, but we don't understand that behind a lot of the activities going on uh, in this world, there are demonic powers, invisible powers that are seeking to create havoc, to ruin man, to destroy man. Uh, One cannot read Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul talks about spiritual wickedness in high places the workers of darkness, principal and powers. These are terms that are used to describe uh, fallen angelic beings that have now become demonic monsters that work in concert with Satan to bring about his plan to destroy humanity and, of course, to frustrate the work of God. This is a battle that's been going on for the Garden of Eden until now. This is a, a battle that's on. our problem as human beings is that we cannot see the invisible world. And because we live in a world of flesh and blood, uh we have become pawns to to these entities that we're not fully aware of and we think that most that happened to us that somehow is just a flesh and battle but the Bible warns against that and we as christians in particular should be aware that we are in a great battle uh, with invisible forces that uh, are competing against the divine plan uh, trying to bring man to ruin and to frustrate the work of God this destroy his church. So I'm not surprised that uh, she would have seen things of this nature. And remember that angels, clearly in the Old Testament, can uh, materialize. Uh, uh, you read the book of, uh, read the Gospels, how they appear and disappear. Uh, so they're not like human beings that have flesh, but they have the capacity to materialize um and manifest themselves in human form. We see that both in the old testament and in the new testament. So if you don't think like that this happened,
0: another question that has come in. Good night, gentlemen. Were Ananias and Sapphira saved in another example of God destroying his children due to their wickedness, sort of like the sons who burned incense and got killed by God in Exodus or Leviticus, I think. Thank you in advance for answering.
1: There's no definitive answer uh, as far as whether or not an and Sapphira were saved. Um, if a person is lost, but he lies, everybody would drop down in church. The reality is that we have a situation. I don't think that this is indication that they were lost. I think this is an indication of God purifying the church, because at that venture, you've got the church now beginning to uh, form, to to, to expand and one thing that you don't want in the church that's beginning to grow and expand and have a witness of testimony is have people who are willfully deceiving and have sin rampant with the church. So I don't think, in my judgment, I don't believe that they were necessarily lost, uh, just like I don't think that every judgment that God did in the Old Testament, uh, that those people that God judged, all of those Israelites in certain situations, that they were lost. I think that is God judging people very, very severely in these matters. Similarly, there are a lot of uh, believers today that are not living the way that they should. Take the guy um, in Acts 5, which is a classic example of the possibility of a believer uh, being so addicted to sin like this guy living with his stepmother and uh, he he goes on living in the church beats him up and to show that they're tolerant and of course the apostle paul said look i'm not even there with you my spirit is there with you but i want you to cast this person out and paul's argument is this that his body be destroyed spirit be saved in the day of Jesus Christ so it's possible that a person can be a believer and uh, live in sin basically fall into sin and God remove them and put the body but save the soul uh, so there's no in my judgment that singular act of Ananias and Sapphira uh, the act of hypocrisy pretending to be more generous than you were uh, do you know how many Christians would be guilty of that uh and if we if we say that they were not Christians because of that of, of uh being uh, this being a measure of untruthfulness and hypocrisy, uh there are a lot of people today in church and people throughout church history who've done far worse uh, but yet, they're not lost people, they're saved people, but God disciplines His children. And in the early church, that was an uh, early means to purge the church so that that, that early stage, the church, might uh, become uh, flooded with, with sin and iniquity which grieved the Holy Spirit and stopped His work. So it was needful then. For God to establish the holiness church. As a matter of fact, you discover that as a result of Ananias and Sapphira's death, it is said that no man doth join themselves to them because of fear. So the church was not a place where unsafe people wanted to be because they were fearful of what had happened to Ananias and Sapphira, what happened to them. So it created a great deal of fear where the church was now. Uh, it's not like today we invite unsafe people to church. That was not what was happening in the New Testament. The unsaved person didn't want to come to church because the fear of God and God was so real, and the power of God was so real in the church. They were fearful of that kind of holiness manifesting itself within the church. But it was needful at the very beginning of the church to preserve its identity, purity, and, of course, it's power, because with purity comes power, and that's why it was done. But I don't think that they were necessarily uh, unsaved people that died because singular act of lying to the, uh, to the Holy Spirit or lying to, to Paul and the apostles. I don't believe that it necessarily means that they were not saved.
0: You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. Thank you to the individuals who have been sending in questions thus far tonight. If you have a question that you would like answered from a biblical worldview, or you're curious what the Bible says or why it doesn't say something about a particular topic, feel free to WhatsApp or text your question to 268 782 one four five four. If you'd like to call, you can call and speak with our call screener, and she will type out your question, and I will ask Pastor Murphy as soon as I get it. And the phone number to call is two six eight four six two one four five four. Pastor, you were sharing some verses to substantiate the arguments for the Holy Spirit's deity.
1: Yeah, I mentioned that there were seven. Arguments that are generally used by uh, Christian theologians to establish the deity of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and we talked about the fact that he's clearly called God and uh, in the passage I gave you. The other argument, Nathan, is that he possesses attributes that can only be applied to uh, deity or the Godhead. For example, if you look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, uh, you should discover there a key word that can only be applied to God that's applied to Him. And uh, so Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14.
0: How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God?
1: Notice the word, through the eternal Spirit. It's referring to the Holy Spirit as our Lord ministered for the time he was in the womb and uh, he was anointed uh, with the Holy Spirit and of course the Holy Spirit also came upon him at his baptism but it's very very clear that through his ministry uh, he worked under the power of the Holy Spirit as we are designed also to live in the power of the Holy Spirit but notice that the Holy Spirit here is called the eternal spirit that can only be applied to a divine being. No other being can ever be called eternal except it be God. He be God. So that that particular attribute of eternality uh, is applied to the spirit. He is eternal, just like the Father is eternal, the Son is eternal. Uh, The other thing, if you look at John, sorry, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 18, uh, you see another attribute that can only be applied to uh, the divine being.
0: Isaiah forty eighteen says, to 12, to 18, 12 to 18, 12 to 18, okay. Let me back up a little here. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, the metered out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth with a measure, and weighed the mountains in the scales, and on the hills in a balance? And who hath directed the spirit of the Lord, or being his counsel, or Being his counselor, hath taught him. Verse 14 With whom took he counsel? And who instructed him? And taught him in the path of judgment? And taught him knowledge? And showed to him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and they are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isle as every little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing in vanity. Uh, verse 18, To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare to him? What verse do you want me to go through? Uh,
1: that's good. Uh, the whole process there, notice that it's talking about the Spirit of the Lord. Uh, in that passage, and it's called He, and is talking about the infinitude of God, that uh, He's got infinite wisdom, He has infinite power. As a matter of fact, He is so great that there's no sacrifice big enough uh, that can really satisfy Him uh, as an infinite being. So the whole the, the emphasis of, of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12 to 18, has to do with the infinite. God. He's an infinite being uh, in his wisdom and his knowledge and his power, uh, his worth and his uh, etc. That, again, if you read the passage, you, you, you mentioned the term the Spirit of the Lord in that same passage. He's talking about the Spirit of God, and that infinite uh, term uh, applies to him. So not only is he eternal, but he's infinite in those dimensions that are mentioned there in Isaiah chapter 40. The other thing is, if you look at Psalm 139, verse 7 to 10. Uh, There's another factor that we're told about the Spirit of God.
0: Psalm 139?
1: Yeah, verse 7
0: to 10. All right, it says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me.
1: Uh, where should I go from the Spirit? The the emphasis there, basically, is the fact that the Holy Spirit, uh, the Spirit of God, is everywhere. Uh, you go into the sea, He's there. You go into the wilderness, He's there. It doesn't matter where you go. The whole emphasis there is on the, on the presence of God, that He is everywhere at the same time. That attribute is only an attribute that can apply to a divine person. Uh, no 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 created being, no demigod, as it were uh, could have a kind of an act so he 's not only eternal and infinite but he's omnipresent he 's everywhere at the same time And look at second Corinthians chapter two verse ten to eleven you see another attribute of God
0: second corinthians two ten to eleven says to whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also second
1: For Corinthians chapter. 1 uh, Corinthians chapter
0: 2, I think it is. Sorry. All right, no. First Corinthians yeah. chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 say, But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God
1: that the Holy Spirit has an omniscient omniscient knowledge of God. He knows God, the Father, infinitely. He knows uh, a man's spirit knows what's in him. The Holy Spirit knows everything about God himself. The other one uh, passage goes along with this omniscient uh, capacity that the Holy Spirit has is John chapter 14 verse twenty six and John fifteen thirteen. Would you look those two passages for me, please? John fourteen twenty six and John fifteen verse thirteen.
0: Alright. Fourteen twenty six says But the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you.
1: And verse fifteen, chapter fifteen verse thirteen.
0: 15:13 says greater love hath no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friend. 15:13? That's 15:13, yeah.
1: Okay, I got it wrong. Maybe it's check 16:13 just just to make Take sure it's
0: John not. John 16:13 13 13, 13, yeah. says 16:13 says uh, how be it when he the spirit of truth yeah. is come he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come.
1: Yeah, you notice that he will teach you all things, and he will guide you into all truth. Uh, again that's emphasizing the fact that he has the full knowledge of all that the believer needs to know and of course the entire New Testament uh, with our Lord promised that he'll bring all things to remembrance and teach you things to come uh, as a result of his, uh, uh, his His work in inspiration so that is not the teaching that uh, he's eternal as we pointed out in Hebrews 9.14 he's infinite according to Isaiah chapter 48 verse 12 to 18 and then he has an omnipresent uh one thirty nine seven to eleven, but his omniscient knowledge of God in all things about God, and he will give all things your remember, and he will teach you all truth. Clearly, we're dealing here with a being that is beyond uh, any kind of created knowledge. So this is this is one. This also shows his omniscience. And then one other one. Look at um, Luke one thirty five and Zechariah four six.
0: Luke 1.35 says, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also the holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God.
1: Okay, so notice that the Holy Spirit uh, who will come upon Mary is uh, equated... With the fact uh, his power is such as is power of God. And then if you look at Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6 in the Old Testament.
0: Zechariah chapter 4, verse six. Four, 6 says, Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by my might, nor by power, but by my spirit saith the Lord of hosts.
1: the Lord is working through, in this case, the Holy Spirit, and it's by His power that God accomplishes work. The point I'm making here, Nathan, is that both in Luke chapter 1 uh, demonstrates that the Holy Spirit uh, has the same omnipotent power that the father has, and that's one of the qualities of deity, that you have not only omniscience and uh, omnipresence, but you also have what is called uh, omnipotence, all power. Uh, So when you look at the fact that he's called God, and the other thing is that he possesses those attributes that only can be applied to a divine being, he's he's eternal, he's infinite, he's omnipresent, he's omniscient, and he's omnipotent, Uh, clearly uh, no being outside of God or the Godhood uh, would possess those kind of attributes. So that's the second argument that the Church has discovered in its studying the uh in terms of who this person is. Uh, they discover that he's called God. They discover that he has the attributes, what you might call the non-communicable attributes of God. That is, attributes that cannot be applied to man. There are other attributes that are communicable, for example, love and, and, and uh, compassion and long-suffering and... and, and uh, Uh, faithfulness and so on, those attributes can be imparted and in actual fact rely to the life of believers, not exhaustively but substantially, but when it comes to we can never uh, be uh, talk about being eternal. We can never talk about being uh, infinite and having uh, omnipresent everywhere at the same time and omniscient. Those are activists that only apply to God. The third argument that the church uses is that the works that before the Holy you Spirit before you go it.
0: on to that, uh, we've got three questions that have come in when Christ was on earth he told us that when he goes the spirit will come on to you but when the but when Christ goes he will send the spirit and Christ will never leave you or forsake you Christ Mm -hmm. will be there at all times therefore Christ is the Holy Spirit for a million people to accept Christ the spirit is in them therefore it is Christ himself in them
1: well, Christ uh, it dwells a believer through the person, the Holy Spirit. Uh, he is sitting at the right hand of God the Father interceding for the believer. And it's through the Holy Spirit. That's why the Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Christ. He's also called the Spirit of, of God. Uh, and that's because of his identity with the Father and also his identity with Christ. But the Holy Spirit is not Jesus. It's very, very clear the Holy Spirit could not be Jesus. If Jesus said, I will send you another comforter, another of the same type. As I am. That's what the Word is. And the reason why, uh, of course, the Holy Spirit could not come until Christ was ascended, because the, the indication that the work that Christ did cross, the vicarious, sacrificial, atoning death of Christ, that God had accepted it, and that God had vindicated the death of Christ uh, as something authentic, real, and effective, was the resurrection. Until he was resurrected and ascended to heaven, uh, that was the sure sign that he was indeed who he claimed Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 verse 4, he was demonstrated to be the son of God by the resurrection for the dead so he could not, uh, the Holy Spirit could not have come until this work of redemption was completed, God had vindicated that this work that Christ did was authentic and real and uh, he was satisfied and after that taken place uh, he ascended to the Father and the Holy Spirit was sent as a result of his ascending uh so the holy spirit is not christ this is part of the the error by the way that has fallen into the a lot of these new age movements and uh talk about higher consciousness and Christ's consciousness that's the teaching to be that uh also was part of the heretical uh philosophical teaching about gnosticism that christ was uh jesus was a man But the Christ Spirit came on Jesus at his baptism and left him when he was crucified and went back to the Father. So they don't say that Jesus and Christ are the same, so they're two different persons. That is part of the heresy that is being taught. And so when people say that the Holy Spirit is Christ, understand it is part of the same heretical teaching that refuses to... um, that refuses to see uh, Christ as a person who was both man and God at the same time, and uh, this 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 uh, confusion about the Jesus being the Holy Spirit being Jesus uh, is a part of modalism again. Uh, that these people talk about that the Father is the Spirit, the Father is the Son. It's just that the Father manifested in the Son of the Spirit and then later manifested in the Son of the Son. This is a falsehood that was rejected by the church and it's heretical. So there's no way in the Bible that we ever taught, anywhere at all, that Jesus. And the Holy Spirit are the same person. Uh, Christ indwells the believer uh, by the Holy Spirit, and that's the connection between the believer and Christ on planet Earth. The Holy Spirit uh, comes in the temple of the body, and his presence is how Christ indwells the believer.
0: Thank you to the individual who called in with that question. A follow up in relation to the question about Ananias and Sapphira. Is lying to the Holy Spirit different from ignoring your conscience on a matter, or is it similar?
1: No, it's, in the case here, uh, in the book of Acts, uh, it is very, very clear that as far as uh, Peter was concerned and the others was concerned, uh, that this was a deliberate lie uh, against the Holy Spirit. Uh, land against your conscience is not the same as land against your, uh, the holy spirit uh, land against your conscience is the soul's economic uh sorry um, automatic warning system uh, god has implanted in every man something called a conscience written in man's heart uh, man is pre-programmed with the law written in his heart romans chapter one speaks about that the man has the law written in his own heart so every man that comes into this world is born with a conscience that inclines towards the law. In other words, morality. We know what is right and wrong. Uh, as we mature, uh, that comes into reality. And we can go against our conscience. Every one of us is to go against our conscience. We know that stealing is wrong. We know that lying is wrong. Uh, we know that the facts are wrong. We've all done that. Um, but many, many times we've done that when it's compunction. Um, we can become so adept at it that it no longer affects us because the conscience becomes seared and it no longer uh, is sensitive. Uh, every one of us also know when we came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, when we got saved. Uh, it was a time of a crisis, a major crisis, with about us so much conviction. It was not the same conviction that we had when it, we felt our conscience smiting us. It was something far more real than that. It was something so real that we were willing to turn our back on our sins and turn away from those sins and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, before that, we could do certain things. Of course, it bothered us enough, but it never brought us to. The, we were willing to repent and say we were wrong and evil and wicked and uh, connected with God. So, the distinction between the conscience. And the convicting power of the holy spirit uh so i uh clearly in that passage in romans sorry in Acts chapter five uh peter uh pointed out that this was a deliberate lie uh to the holy spirit uh it's a different thing between lying to the holy spirit and lying to your conscience
0: thank you to the individual who sent in that question Uh, Brother Williams called in. Obviously, he's not able to go live on the air, Pastor, but he said good night. In the New Testament, in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we know how a person is saved. But how could a person know that they were saved in the Old Testament times?
1: Well, People were saved uh, quite similar to how we're saved today. As a matter of fact, Romans chapter 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul, in in dealing with his doctrine of salvation, goes back into the Old Testament and uses Old Testament examples of what uh, justification by faith is all about. He takes Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Where they said that Abraham believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. And Paul uses that same argument that that's how Abraham was saved. He was saved by putting his faith and trust in God. Uh, Abraham, uh, you remember our Lord said, Abraham desired to see my day and he saw my day? I don't know if you remember that in the book of John. But Abraham looked forward to the provision that our Lord promised in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15, that the seed of the woman would come that would bruise the serpent's head, and the serpent would bruise uh, his heel. That was pointed to the, the, the promised Messiah that would come. And that promise of a Messiah Uh, was carried on in the Old Testament so that people were always looking for the Messiah to come. So they were saved by faith, looking forward to the Messiah coming, that the Lord would send one that would redeem, that would forgive. That is why all the Old Testament sacrifices in the book of Leviticus and throughout the Bible are all types of the one who will succumb that would die and his blood would be shed because the Bible says, I've given the blood upon the altar to make an atonement for your soul because the life is in the blood. That was a teaching that was continuously taught throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, until when our Lord came in, in John chapter 1, and John saw the Lord walking with it, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world." When John made that statement, everybody knew what he was talking about. This is the promised lamb that would, 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 would come. That uh, All the types in the Old Testament pointing to him. So um, they were saved in the Old Testament by looking forward toward the promise of the Messiah. They're looking to the Messiah to come. We are saved by looking back on the Messiah who has already come. So we know we were not there when he died so we look back on the uh, on the fact that he came and he died and he paid the price and we put our faith and trust in his work on us his redemptive atoning death for us so we're all saved the same way we're saved by faith one looking to the messiah to come one looking back on the fact that the messiah has come but always rest Faith in the promise of the Messiah who would come, who would take away the sin of the world, and uh, die as a substitute for us in our place because of our guilt, so that we may be forgiven and and be restored and become justified before God. So it's it's the same thing. Uh, as a matter of fact, also in the same book, Romans chapter three and four, Paul not only used Abraham, he uses David, and he quotes for the song where David said, "How blessed it is for man to." Lord will not impute iniquity, but would impute righteousness. And uh, David, of course, uh, had tremendous guilt when he committed his sin with Bathsheba, the word to cover the sin, he killed uh, Uriah. Uh, You can imagine carrying that kind of guilt uh, guilt and being considered a man after one God. But imagine you have seen all the blessings of God, but yet you've come to a point in your life where you had an eclipse of faith and unbelief, as it were, and even lust that you went as everything you knew to be true. It's very hard. How can you believe a God be will willing to forgive you, not only for adultery, but for murder? It took faith to believe that. And that's why David said, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord would not impute uh, iniquity. David began to realize that when he repented in Acts, in, in, in uh, uh, Psalm chapter 51, that God had pardoned him. gratuitously pardoned him. And, uh, and it was a blessing to David. Uh, he, that's why he expressed those kind of terms that God had, had not imputed the iniquity he had committed. He had actually removed and covered his sin. But in addition to that, God had imputed to him righteousness uh, based on the fact of what Christ would do uh, in the future. Uh, so basically we are saved the same way. the uh, Same way of repentance and the same way of looking at uh, uh, the Messiah comes. The messiah already come we look back on that but the element of faith uh is the key that is what uh justification by faith is all of a, all these are that in romans chapter three and romans chapter four so we're saved by the same way it's just that they look forward to the messiah coming look back on the fact that messiah has already come and paid the price
0: thank you brother williams for sending in that question pastor does it take more faith for us to look back at the savior or for them to look forward? Or is that even a fair question?
1: I don't know if it's a fair question, because you look at it either way. Uh, they never saw the Messiah, except those that live in the New Testament times who were looking for the Messiah to come. And think of the trials that they went through that you and I have never been through. Think about the times when the Jewish nation was under threat to be completely obliterated. Think of the times of Esther, where uh, Haman decided that he would obliterate the Jewish race. Uh, think of all the the um, other occasions where the Messiah is coming to the line of David, and the line of David is almost obliterated. Uh, think of all those type of ills uh, and think of how long it was, almost 2,000 years waiting for the Messiah to come. We now look back on 2,000 years that the Messiah has come. We weren't there, uh, And just like they depended upon the prophets and the scriptures in the Old Testament, We depend upon the New Testament. So I think in a very real sense, there is, uh, I think we have more, actually, we have more evidence, we have more resources, uh, we have more scripture than they do, so it means that we should have a a much greater faith than they had. But it's hard to say that, uh, you know, if it requires more faith on on our part, all I would say to you is not so much the quantity of faith the quality of faith in the object of faith. So it's a matter of faith, price, whether Old Testament or New Testament. And it's not so much the quantity, it has to do with the type of faith that you put and the person you put your faith and trust, whether it be little faith or much faith or in between faith, it's what you put your faith and trust in that determines your destiny and your salvation.
0: We have a follow-up in relation to the question earlier about uh, the Holy Spirit and Christ being one the caller says Christ says that he and his father are one so therefore the Father, Son and Holy Spirit are one and he was God and he was God and only he could die for sinners so Christ is God himself. Christ said, I will go and prepare a place where I am there you will be also therefore he's the same as the Holy Spirit.
1: Again, uh, you're conflating uh, these things together. Our position, and the position, historic position of the Christian church is that there are three persons within the Godhead. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's one God in the sense that there's one essence, one substance, like one humanity, uh, if you understand what I'm saying, uh, to use an equation. Um, but within humanity, there are different persons, but they all share what is called this common element of humanity. When we come to the, the adoption of God, it's the same thing. They all share whatever makes God God, that that essence of what God is, that, that substance of what God is. Uh, the Father shares that, the Son shares that, and the Holy Spirit shares that. But in terms of identity... They are not. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Spirit. That is modalism, that the Church has rejected uh, as a heretical teaching way back in the fourth century. Uh, so this is nothing new. This is just a old heresy that is being peddled by people who don't, uh, I would say, have a, uh, a false understanding of interpreting. This is what where the Jehovah's Witnesses again have gone into error. Uh, in connection with the Holy Spirit, there is no person who is reasonable and uh, who studies the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, would discover, quite frankly, for the very first verse of the Bible, the concept of a plurality within the that is stated there in the beginning. God, the word is Elohim; it's plural in the Greek, in the Hebrew language, but the verb is singular. So, just that you have the word family, and you can say the family is, you don't say the family are uh it's that kind of a plural, uh, plural noun that is used, and of course, in the book of Genesis. Let us make man in our image, in the image of God. Uh, man was made in the image of God. So even though it's a plurality, let us, man is made in the image of God. So you've got that plurality, but yet you've got this singularity that is also mentioned. So it's a complex unit in the Godhead. That's the biblical teaching. Any deviant teaching away from that that would suggest that the Father is a Son, and the Son is a Spirit, and the Spirit is a Son, is completely heretical and, and, and false. And the church has repudiated that, and um, it's a heretical teaching.
0: Let me encourage that caller uh, to go online and listen to Pastor Did two full episodes on the Trinity throughout Scripture and sharing uh, biblical evidence of the Trinity and explaining that concept. And you can go online, go to our website, www.radiolighthouse.org. Scroll down to the second large picture that you see. It's a large microphone, and right in the center, you're going to see a circle that says podcast. Click on that, and then you'll see a link for That's Truth podcast and an archive. Go to episode 116 and episode 117. And while I'm talking about that, if you have a question about a topic, maybe you're talking with someone or trying to counsel someone who is struggling with an addiction, maybe uh, you are trying to answer some questions or you're curious what the Bible says about feminism or many, many different topics. Uh, every previous episode of That's Truth for the last few years has been podcast online and you can go and you can search by topic and it is a resource made available free of charge for you to use for yourself and to share with friends and family. We have questions that are continuing to come in.
1: To it, may I interject here for just a minute as well? Yeah, I, I might I'll ask you the uh, the same person sending the question. You know, there's some very good doctoral books that that person, uh, if he has this confusion as so what, uh, this 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 blurring between. Uh, the Christ and the Holy Spirit. You know, there's, there's books uh, that he can get online. Um, it would cost him 99 cents um, if you had a Kindle. Uh, there's a, a whole set of uh, Hodge books on uh, theology, two very large volumes that you can get on 90, 99 cents if you had a Kindle. Uh, there's also Charles Ryrie book on Bible, doctrine, Bible doctrines, and there's the one here by um, uh, Thiessen. In my judgment, it's probably the best theological book for those who hold to the Baptist faith and who are non-reformed Baptists. And then there's, of course, uh, Millard Fred Erickson. He also has written a very extensive book. And uh, so there there are a lot of them. Cameron has written one as well. Evans has written one as well. I would suggest to that person, you know. And uh, another one is that if he were to get um, the book on the Holy Spirit by... Dwight Pentecost. That would be another book that would, would bring some clarity to this matter. And then John Walbert also wrote a book on the Holy Spirit. That would bring some clarity on the matter. The entire book is on the Holy Spirit. So I would recommend that, um, you know, if the person is really seeking to get further clarity, that there are many theological books that would, would bring out this in, in in a more forceful way, and you uh, would spend more time studying this great doctrine.
0: You are listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We have about 15 minutes left in tonight's episode, and we have questions that are continuing to come in. A WhatsApp question from Antigua. Good evening. In Egyptian time, BCE... There were mythical stories about virgin birth and sacrifice of people eating their body and drinking blood to gain their powers. How are these different from the story of Jesus?
1: One is sin and one is mythology. And I I would like to say to the person who sent us this question, you know, again, if you have a biblical worldview, if you believe in the Scriptures, you believe in God, et cetera, et cetera, and you believe in a fallen angel called Satan, who is the great arch enemy of God, and man, uh, if you were told in Genesis chapter 15, chapter 3, verse 5, in the very beginning that one day the seed of the womb would come that would bruise your head and destroy you, Etc., etc. That battle began in Genesis chapter 3. If you are throughout the entire Old Testament history, the Messiah is coming. He's coming to a virgin birth in in Isaiah chapter uh, 7. What would you do uh, if you wanted to create a situation of unbelief and skepticism uh, about this one who's going to come? You would do exactly what has happened with a lot of these, behind all of these false religions. There is the arch enemy called Satan And he has corrupted Biblical teaching and doctrines And even the Trinity By the way uh, There are trinities In terms of The Hindu religion uh, and so it, what has happened is that the basic core doctrines that humanity had at the very beginning in, in the book of Genesis, those doctrines were twisted and distorted so that by the time the Messiah comes and to fulfill the prophetic word, Satan was done enough damage to create doubt in people's minds. And it's not in my mind, by the way, that in anticipation of the virgin birth and these different types of teaching on the on the Trinity, example, that he went ahead already established so that people think that these things came out of mythology rather than coming directly from Revelation. Uh, He is subtle and smart, and he is an imitator as well. And remember also in the book of Revelations, the same concept with the Trinity, uh, he tries to imitate with uh, the 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 first piece and the second piece. In other words, you've got the infernal Trinity in the book of Revelation, so it's not not surprising that he should try to dictate uh, what the truth about God and try to twist and distort it. So I see these mythologies and all of this kind of thing. That Andy, this doesn't this doesn't terrify me or threaten me or destroy my faith or undermine my confidence in Scripture. It, in a very real sense, firms and, and, and bolsters my understanding of why this would happen and how it could have happened. So, I'm not troubled by these types of things. And I think that people who uh, underestimate the craftiness and the subtlety and the devious nation, deviousness of infernal being called Satan, uh, they are always outsmarted or witted by him because they don't have the light of scripture to really expose him as he should. And I think this is what's happened with a lot of people who look at mythology and try to equate it with biblical Christianity. There's a book written by uh, Alexander Hislop called The Two Babylons. Uh, I would suggest that even this person will raise this question. Uh, secure that book uh, and feed it. And you will find that Alexander Hislop, a uh, uh, pastor, uh, traces the mythologies and how Satan, uh, ancient times, uh, tried to distort biblical truth. For example, in, in terms of the Catholic Church, how he brought the, uh, the mother and the, and, the, and the child, he shows you that even in uh, ISIS, and um, and others within the Greek mythology and also within uh, Egyptian um, uh, pagan uh, religion, uh, that they also try to imitate uh, these kind of things and how these things were brought into the church. Uh, a lot of this teaching that you've within Catholicism was an attempt to uh, give to the heathens who rushed into the church when Christianity became the religion of the Roman uh, Roman world. Uh, they wanted to have duplicates of what the heathen had, so that a lot of what has happened to Christianity, uh, like uh, Easter, uh, Christmas, a lot of these type of things, there's no question about it that a lot of that was created. Uh, to have parallels so that the not have to go to this place or go to that place or do this kind of thing. The church offered similar um, experiences, if I might put that way, in order to keep them from the heathen temple. But in the process, uh, we ended up with a lot of uh, things that should not be the church being in the church. And that's a fact of history. But I'm not surprised that uh, in the of the ancient world, whether it be Egyptian or Greek or, or Roman or any other, uh, or Canaanite, that uh, these things were already in order and in place because they were trying to corrupt and to try to create disbelief and unbelief and skepticism. But when the Messiah comes, there'd be so much confusion about him and what he's supposed to do that people begin to equate these things. By the way, the same Mark Nathan you find this argument, like what this guy is saying, in what is called the higher criticism that came out of Germany in the 19th century, and was filtered down to, into England, and then into the U.S., and corrupted all of these uh, uh, Christian institutions. But it, it, they're embracing these false ideas from ancient mythology and equate it with Christianity, and then uh, destroying Christianity through a lot of their writings for people who were not formed and who were not aware. Uh, and a lot of what they've said in the past has now been disproven, but there's no recanting or retracting on these things. They're still there, and people who read these books still believe in these myths and these falsehoods.
0: We have about six minutes left in tonight's episode. A follow-up comment in relate, comment or question, I believe it's in relation to the question that Brother Williams asked about people being saved in the Old Testament. From what I read in the Bible, like Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7, or Ezekiel 18, it's all about repentance and changing our ways from the heart. Jesus even said it using the prodigal son who came to his senses and went back to his father. Would you agree with that?
1: Well, repentance is an, uh, an indispensable element of salvation. Nobody is saved except to repent. So there's no question that God calls people to repent. But there must also be faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Repentance is only one element. But there was always the, the, the son of Genesis right through the Bible, the Messiah is coming. When the Messiah comes, he's going to uh, be a substitute, and he's going to die in atoning death, so that we may be pardoned and forgiven. The 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 innocent shall die in place of the guilty, and all these sacrificial animals, the the innocent animals, the lambs and the goats, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, uh, died in place of man uh, in a temporary way until finally. The Messiah would come, who would really die in, in, on, on behalf of humanity. That's why he became a man, took on human flesh, to die in place of man. But the, the fact is, repentance alone is not going to get anybody to heaven. There must be faith in God in addition to repentance. That's why the Bible says, repent and believe. And in the Old Testament, where God calls people to turn back, remember, he's calling back people who have faith in God. These are Jewish people who believe in Jehovah God. So that's why there's not so much emphasis on the fact that they must believe in God. But again, uh, the belief in God is inadequate unless they practice repentance as well. Same thing today. Nobody is saved by simply repenting and not turning their faith in Jesus Christ. You are saved when you repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. You repent of your sins. And then you in the work of Jesus Christ as a sufficient means of God justifying you, pardoning you, forgiving you, and imputing Christ's righteousness to you. That's what salvation is all about. It involves both repentance, and it, there must be also be that element of faith.
0: We have two more questions that have come in. I'll try and give them to you quickly so we can get through them. A uh, call her from Herberts. When Jesus was in heaven, he wasn't Jesus. He was the word of God, 1 John. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. The angel told Mary to call his name Jesus. He only got the name Jesus when the angel told Mary to give him the name Jesus. He had the same power as before he was called Jesus. He was full of power because he was anointed by the Holy Spirit, healing sick, Raising the dead, because he was full of the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus is the same power of the Holy Spirit in God.
1: Well, I don't know if we where there's a dispute about that. I I don't see the, the, the problem with that. Clearly, Christ existed before Abraham was. I am claims the divine name, the I am, the self existent one. That's why the Jews took up stones to stone him saying, Look, this man not even forty years old, but yet he's claiming to be older than Abraham they recognize that, that he was assuming that divine title you find in the next chapter three. So I, there's no dispute that before when Christ before Christ came to planet Earth, he was the word. He was God's Son and then he assumed human flesh. But remember in coming in human flesh he lives as a man. That is why he's filled with the Holy Spirit to live as a man. He's not trying to live as a deity. And I have said this several times on this program. Every time Christ uses divine power, it's never to help himself. It's always to help somebody because he came to be our example how God intended us to live that we would live in the power of the Holy Spirit depending on the Holy Spirit. So he lived to show us exactly how to live. So he never went outside the parameters of the, the power of the Holy Spirit uh, for himself. But to, for others, he told again and again that he is God and he had, he had divine power. Uh, in himself, but he never exercised that to help himself. He lived independent upon the Holy Spirit. That's the, that's the teacher See Both man and God at the same time. This is the great mystery called the hypostatic Union, that he's 100% man, 100% God. But he did not use his divine prerogative. Uh, he lived as a man. That's where Philippians chapter 2 come in. He did not consider equality with God something to be held on to a grasp, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of man and lived as a man among us as a servant, and became obedient unto death. But he had to die as a man because God can't die. So as a man, he died in man's place because man sinned, and that is where we have this vicarious atonement, that as a man, he died in place of man. But to give efficacy to his death, so it's sufficient for the world, he has to be God at the same time. Sacrifice has to be of infinite worth, and it can only be of infinite worth if he's not only human, but he's also divine at the same time. We've That's got a great mission.
0: All right, sorry to interrupt. We've got uh, less than a minute. we got one more question. Let me see if I can get it in sure. here. Hi there. In regards to the belief that God and the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one and not three in one, I have a friend who also <laughs> believes this and has mentioned that the teaching for three in one came from Catholicism. Is that true?
1: False. Remember, Catholicism is only something that came up through the, the, like the, the, uh, the 1,500 years. Uh, long before that, there was no Catholicism. Remember the word Catholicism means universal. Uh, so when you hear about the Catholic Church and the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. <laughs> it doesn't mean the Catholic Church that exists today. It just means I believe in the universal church that the Church throughout the world is one because they're by one Holy Spirit. There's one Lord, there's one, there's one Spirit, there's one body, there's one Church. But that that term is now perceived to be limited only to a distinct denomination, as it were, called the Catholic Church. But that's not what the meaning of the word originally meant.
0: Thank you very much for all who participated in tonight's program. And, Pastor, thank you for joining us over the phone Uh, Stay tuned and we will continue to bring you the best Christian programming throughout the Eastern Caribbean. And be sure you join us next week as we continue this topic, Lord willing, of the Holy Spirit. And as pastor brings you scripture verses that uh, substantiate the arguments for the deity of the Holy Spirit. Have a safe and blessed night. Thank you for joining us for today's program.